Today we're in Acts chapter 2. We saw in the, in the first chapter of Acts that Jesus had promised it. And now in the, the second chapter of Acts, it's, it's happened. It's fulfilled. The Spirit has been poured out on Christians gathered in Jerusalem. This is a big event. Pentecost means 50th day. We talked about this last week. There would have been a lot of out of, out of towners there. And they saw all these and heard all these country bumpkins from Galilee talking in languages that they understood. And they, they said, what is going on? How can this be? What is all of this? Is what they were saying. Well, it was, it was a result of the sound of this mighty rushing wind in the upper room, the tongues of fire over the heads, and then the, the speaking in a variety of languages that they didn't know previously how to speak in. All of this was, was proving, as Luke captures in Acts, this fundamental shift that we're going to continue seeing happen. And it's, it started with this pouring out of the Spirit and them speaking in tongues. And it, it, it was, I could boil it down into this and in saying that God's presence doesn't just dwell in the temple or tabernacle anymore. God's presence as the, the sound and the, the fire symbolize, God's presence dwells in every one of His believe, in every one of His children, in every believer. They are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has come to dwell within them. God was equipping His church with the power of his spirit so that he would be glorified among the nations. Remember, that was the point of all of this that Jesus made sure of in chapter 1. He said, all of these things will happen and you will be my witnesses. Judea and Samaria and outwards to the, the ends of the earth. Well, now it's starting in Jerusalem and people, they saw and heard all of this and they said, what does this mean? Peter stands up in chapter 2, verse 14, and he begins to explain it. And so we want to read the first part of his message together, verses 14 through 21, and then we'll pray, ask God's blessing on our time together in his word. Let's read chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we venture into these words and studying them this morning, uh, we need the Spirit, in fact, with us now to make sense of this, to understand it. 
Those who are listening without Christ need the Spirit to move in their hearts and stir it, make it alive to hear the gospel and be saved. And so we pray that you would do all of this work. It is a work of yours. Do it today in in us as we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can see pretty quick, Peter gets up, he says, they're not drunk. Hold on, time out a minute. Um, you can see that in verse 13. That's what they were thinking. Some of the people heard and they said, what does this mean? And they were eager for an answer. And some people mocking said, these Christians are just drunk. They're full of new wine. And so Peter stands up and he defends him. He defends himself and these other Christians. Uh, his, his focus in his sermon is Jesus, as we'll see, especially next week. Really, that's the focus of every good sermon, right? Uh, that's the focus of his sermon. But he starts by refuting the misconception of what's going on in God's people. He stands up and he, with confidence, very boldly says to everyone listening, uh, he says, these people are not drunk. And if you figure out the times, basically this was about 9 o'clock in the morning. And so he says, they're not drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. There's something else going on here. Something not of this world. You can't explain it with alcohol. There's something else happening here, is what he's saying. And he clarifies. For those people who genuinely ask the question, what does this mean? He starts to explain it. And wouldn't you know it, he goes back to Scripture, to the Old Testament. He goes back to Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. And he gives this, this Bible study, if you will, from scripture, and you know what it didn't do? It didn't pour cold water on the movement of the Spirit of God in the people, right? Studying, studying scripture fulfilled what the Spirit was doing here. All the signs and all the wonders and all the speaking in tongues were preparing hearts for the Word of God. That's what, that's what we see here. Matthew Henry says it was the fulfilling, it was fulfilling the scripture and the fruit of Christ's resurrection and ascension and the proof of both. Even though Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave him utterance, he did not think to set aside the scriptures. Christ's scholars never learn above their Bible. And the Spirit is given not to do away with the scriptures, but to enable us to understand, approve, and obey them. See, I've, I've talked with pastors who seem to think that their sermons are somehow more powerful and spirit-filled when they avoid deep, intentional Bible study with the congregation. They think that that has a tendency to be cold and academic, and it turns people away to study the deep things of the Bible or to take a long time working through a text. If I could encourage you this morning, don't be fooled into thinking that. It's the Spirit of God using the Word of God that draws hearts to repentance and faith. And it's necessary. And Peter obviously doesn't think it's going to pour cold water on the Spirit. And in fact, it doesn't. It explains what the Spirit is doing. It explains what God is doing here. And so he uses this, uh, he explains What's going on in the context 
by pointing back to Joel. And so he's saying this that you're hearing today is that which was prophesied years and years and years ago. Now, if you look through Joel's writings, if you're unfamiliar with them, a lot of what he wrote focused on the judgment that was coming on Israel. But interspersed throughout are some of these little promises that God gives to his people about blessings, future blessings, in fact. And the Spirit being poured out on God's people everywhere is one of them. And so that's what Joel prophesies. He says, you can read it there with me, starting in verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now we're going to get into the, some of the more details of this in just a minute, but I want us to think about how a couple of different things are connected here by what Peter says. So Peter connects some things back to Joel 2. First thing, prophecies being fulfilled in their hearing. Like right then and there, in that day, Peter is saying, what Joel said would happen is happening now. The Spirit would be poured out. How exciting it must have been to be hearing this and to be experiencing all of these incredible things together. And, and Peter, used of the Spirit, is helping everybody make sense of this. This is not a simply... Uh, experiential happening. No one's asking these people to, to check their brains at the door and just have an emotional response to what the Spirit is doing. Peter is helping them make reasonable thought process through this. And it's a good thing that he does. He's saying prophecy has been fulfilled. What you're hearing today is what Joel was talking about then. Secondly, the second point that Peter makes He says, the last days have dawned. Joel's words in this text that Peter quotes begin actually with the words after this. So when Joel says this, he's alluding to something that's coming in the future. He says, after these things. But now when Peter quotes him, he changes those first few words, the first part of that phrase to say, and in the last days. He's confirming that they were now in those last days. Today, now, in your hearing, this is happening. The last days are now. Now, remember, when talking about last days, that's a, a lot more ambiguous of a term than most of us really like. You know what I'm saying? Like, kids, if your parents say, well, we'll go get ice cream later, you're thinking, oh, later, like, right after I take my next breath later? Well, they might be meaning, well, later after dinner. They might even be meaning later in the week. Now, surely they wouldn't do that to you. And yet, when we hear these kinds of terms in Scripture, it's it's much less definitive than we would really like. They, they usually refer more to like a season or a, a longer period of time than a shorter period of time. Christ has risen. Christ has now ascended back into glory. So they they were just... Now, starting the waiting period of the last days, they were waiting on the return of the king that inaugurated these days, if you will, and they were witnessing the beginning of them, the the mark uh, of Jesus, or God saying, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, when they 
when both Joel and then Peter who quotes Joel, when they, when they use this phrase, just, just a little bit of explanation, he says, they say, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I don't think that they mean that God's going to pour out his spirit on all living things. Okay, I don't think that this means that God's spirit is now in the trees and the grass and, and, and that sort of a thing. Though it's true, every created thing traces its origin back to God, right? And it's true that every living person has been created in the image of God. But I think what Joel and Peter have in mind here when they say all flesh is what we'll see played out later in the book of Acts. When in specifically in Acts chapter 10, people outside the nation of Israel receive the gift and power of the Holy Spirit in very similar fashion to what goes on here in chapter 2. Now it's people outside of the Israelite nation, all flesh. Remember, the, the Spirit doesn't dwell in the temple in Israel anymore. He dwells in his people. And so Peter is emphasizing, I think, another major shift here that is going to be continued to be revealed throughout the book of Acts, and it's this. When it comes to and regarding salvation, distinctions no longer matter. Now, they didn't get this for several more chapters in the book of Acts fully. You know, Peter needed that vision from the Lord of the sheet and the unclean things and that sort of a thing to really drive the point home. But this is what is the rumblings are saying now distinctions when it comes to salvation no longer matter. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that distinctions are irrelevant in our lives today. God has tasked Christians through his word with different things in regards to marriage, in regards to parenting, in regards to teaching and leading in order to demonstrate order, and authority and healthy relationships. Distinctions in those areas absolutely matter. But in regards to salvation, who can be saved? Joel, Peter, and then Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, all go on to say the same thing. They say, and you can see it in the text here, gender doesn't, isn't a distinction that matters. He says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Age isn't going to matter. He says, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Social status isn't going to matter. He says, on my male servants and female servants, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So Pentecost means that now everyone can know God through his spirit that's come. Distinctions don't matter in that sense. So it is with the Spirit of God, as it is with the Son of God, who Paul says in Galatians 3, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You're familiar with this text. There's neither slave nor free. There's male, uh, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Similarly, in Colossians 3.11, he writes, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Again, to be clear, the Bible isn't teaching that age and social status and gender don't exist. It's simply saying that in relation to who can be saved through Jesus Christ by the Spirit, there are no boundaries, there are no walls, there are no distinctions or restrictions. One commentator I read put it pretty well. 
He says, the blessing of salvation through the Son of God and by the Spirit of God is wide as the world in its offer and free to all who accept it. Without national distinction, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Without societal distinction, for there is neither bond nor free. Without sexual distinction, for there is neither male nor female. Without ceremonial distinction, for there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Without intellectual or educational distinction, for the barbarian and even the Scythian, the lowest type of barbarian, are free to share in the blessing of the Spirit. Now remember, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Judges, what do we see the Spirit of God doing? Well, it's not poured out on all flesh at that point. We see the Spirit of God come upon a particular person, usually for a particular length of time, for a particular purpose. You can see this in the life of Samson really well. He made some big-time blunders, didn't he? He really messed up. And yet, yet Scripture says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him to do certain things that would give God glory. Well, now... Peter is saying that Luke records here in Acts that the Spirit has been poured out freely to all people for all time. Now, the word prophecy here we should understand and and study a little bit. Literally, the word prophecy simply means to proclaim a message of God. To proclaim a message from God. So some people who prophesy in Scripture proclaim events that haven't yet happened that will come in the future. Joel does this. We see this. What he prophesied in Joel chapter 2 is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. Okay, But not every prophet preaches about an upcoming or future event. Foretelling is not a necessary element of prophecy because what does prophecy mean? Proclaiming a message from God. So when you, Luke uses this word in the book of Acts, we don't ever hear any of the details of what is being prophesied to know whether they're foretelling future events or not. I would think that were they to be sharing future events that Luke would have thought it significant enough to record those details, but he didn't. We don't find any of those details. But I think what we can be sure of is when these men and women, even young men and women prophesy that they are indeed proclaiming a message from God and they're going to say a lot of the same things that Peter is saying in his sermon here. So we're not going to get to all of this until next week, but the prophecies or messages of God in his sermon are found in three places that I could determine. You can jot these down. Verse 24, verse 36, and verse 38. Verse 24, Peter just simply says it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. The grave could not hold him. Message from God about Jesus. Second one is in 36. Simply, Jesus is Lord. The guy who you crucified, he says to the Jews there, is actually Lord. That's a message from God about Jesus. Verse 38 Repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in salvation. A message from God. You see the emphasis here? Now, Paul teaches in Ephesus in Acts 19, and then 12 men 
begin to prophesy. We don't know of their ages, but I would imagine some were older and some were younger, as what was foretold in the book of Joel. He travels through Caesarea, and in Acts chapter 21, Philip, who is mentioned early on in this book, Philip has two da- four daughters that begin to prophesy. Now, what are they saying? Again, we're not told the details of what they're prophesying about, but I think we should be certain that they're saying these same kind of things. That's what the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh to do, is not to, to point to themselves or even to make a big deal out of themselves. Many want to do that with the speaking of tongues in Acts chapter 2, but it wasn't about them. In every sermon that we hear and read in the book of Acts, the point is always Jesus. And so what was the, the cataclysmic event that had just taken place weeks prior to Pentecost? Well, it was Passover and what happened at Passover that particular year. Jesus was killed and then three days later rose again. Those are the kinds of things I think these people are prophesying about that are speaking the messages of God about. He, Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, and now he's back in heaven on the throne, reigning on high. Like Old Testament prophets, every believer knows God personally and is commissioned to speak his word faithfully. Not their own opinions, but the word of God. And so I think that's what is going on here when the Spirit is being poured out on all flesh, this message of God about Jesus is for all people, all flesh. Barbarian, Scythian, Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, free. There's no distinctions anymore. The Spirit has come for all. (laughs) It's indeed for all flesh. Now the rest of what Peter quotes in uh, Joel Joel chapter 2 verse verse 19 and 20 in uh, Acts chapter 2, rather, um, they seem to be a different focus. So Joel talks about something that's fulfilled there in that time, but now he's also referencing something that's coming in the future. This is part of that prophecy that may look forward to something. He talks about what I think is the day of the Lord, we mentions in verse 20. There's some people that view Luke's words here as a reference simply to the cross, and resurrection, uh, talking about the darkness and the blood and that sort of thing. There are some people that look at these words and link them to the events of around 70 AD when Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem, and it was a bloody event. It was a horrific time. Whatever the case may be, I think it's pretty obvious that the events that Joel and now Peter are explaining and describing uh, are, are not meant to comfort people. Joel, Peter especially is here. He's not talking about um, fire and vapor of smoke and blood in in a way to comfort people. The point of bringing this up is to convey a sense of dread. Now why would a prophet, why would Peter get up to all these people who are questioning and curious, why would he get up and start talking like this? Why would he want to convey dread and not comfort? Because I think it's because these he wants to underscore humanity's need to hear true prophecy about Jesus. The world needs to hear 
the truth, the message of from God about Jesus. Because if they don't, the end is going to be rough. Things are coming that won't go well. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you will be without hope. But then he's, he makes this statement, and I, I'm so glad that Peter includes it in his sermon, that Luke includes it in his writing here of, of the book of Acts, verse 21. If, if you believe the truth about Jesus when you hear it, this verse makes clear that you can be absolutely certain that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All flesh, anyone, without distinction, everyone, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If by the Spirit you hear the truth about Jesus proclaimed and through the Spirit you repent and call on His name, proof positive that you will be saved. You don't have to question it. If you've not set your hope fully on Christ, please know today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. Call upon the name of the Lord, and He won't turn you away. You will be saved. Um, I was reading this week, uh, back in, in 2009, the city of New York had a, had a problem. Now, I'm sure they had more than one problem. But it had, a, it had a problem with elevators. Now, we're in Pike County. We can probably count on one hand how many elevators there are. But in the city of New York, there are lots of them because things are built taller rather than wider. The problem was that elevators would malfunction and get stuck. How many, has anybody ever been in an elevator that's gotten stuck? Just kind of curious. Okay, so you can maybe identify with these problems here. So this was a problem, and it was a problem because people were being injured and some of them were, were dying as a result of, of these elevator issues. Uh, the, the city of New York actually put a bunch of money into a campaign to go into elementary schools and teach children not stop, drop, and roll, but ring, relax, and wait. No kidding. Ring, relax, and wait. So you ring the little button that says help, <laughs> then you relax and you wait. Because see, the problem was that people would get impatient and that they would, I don't, I've never tried this myself. Maybe you who were stuck in an elevator may have investigated this, but I imagine there's some kind of little door that you can kind of get out of if you have to. And people would, were doing this. They were, they were trying to kind of shimmy out and get to safety and several of them fell to their death. Or were injured. And so that was the campaign that New York was saying. Just ring, relax, and wait. Wait for the qualified personnel to come and rescue you. <laughs> Stop trying to do it on your own. Because actually, it's worth worse. In fact, it's deadly to try and save yourself here. Now, Peter is preaching a sermon here that deals with the error of trying to save yourself. He explains to his Jewish brothers and sisters that what they were witnessing was the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy about the outpouring of the Spirit and the day of salvation and the blessing of the Holy Spirit was now visibly seen and, you know, the tongues of fire, the hearing of the, the wind and then seeing the, uh, or hearing the, the people speak in tongues that they hadn't known before. 
They were seeing this all happen and they were also seeing it happen on people that had called on Jesus to save them. A relationship with God doesn't come through keeping the law and Peter will make that more and more clear as we go, but he's saying that that's not how it works. That's not how you're saved. You're saved by trusting Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, as Lord, in fact. And the reality is, if we are trapped in sin, we can't save ourselves. Any more than you can get out of a stuck elevator and get to safety. You can't save yourself. Our only hope for being rescued is acknowledging, and if you want to use it in the context of the analogy, you push the little help button. And by pushing the little help button, you're saying, God, I can't do this on my own. You have to come and rescue me. I need help. This this biblical way of salvation, which is calling on the name of the Lord, it glorifies God, doesn't it? I, I want us to see that. I don't want to miss that this morning because you're not told to call on a pastor. You're certainly not told to call on a politician. You're not even told to call your best friend or your mom. Because you know what? They can't save you. None of them can. The, the most holy person you can imagine cannot save you. Earthly person that you can imagine cannot save you because they're not qualified. You understand? They're not qualified. They are not God. They cannot, cannot save. Only Jesus can save because only Jesus is qualified. He lived without sin. He died in the place of sinners and he was gloriously raised by the Father. He was qualified. Charles Spurgeon says, God asks nothing of us but that we ask everything of him. We are the beggars and he is the benefactor. We are in trouble and he is our deliverer. See, all we do is we trust him. And we believe him. We take him at his word. This forces us to admit and embrace that our salvation rests on God's kindness, not our work. Call on his name, scripture says, and you will be saved. Now, if you're listening and you've thought, man, I've wandered too far. I have messed up more than you can imagine. God wouldn't forgive me. He certainly wouldn't want me in his family either. You may be tempted to think or feel that. If you are, I want you to read verse 21 again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now the ESV translates this everyone, but I think it's helpful to look at the King James Version because it translates it whosoever. And many of us learned our first verse in the King James translation of John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Right? It's the same word. Whosoever, everyone. Peter prophesies or proclaims the message from God that salvation is for everyone, for whosoever believes. The barriers between sinful man and the holy God 
no longer exist because Paul writes that they have been broken down. Those barriers have been broken down by Jesus Christ on the cross to the praise of his glory. Your ethnicity does not matter. Your social status and bank account size does not matter. Your gender does not matter. Old, young, weak, powerful, male, female, these things don't matter because Scripture says, whosoever calls on his name will be saved. In regards to salvation, they don't matter. So the question is, it's not will God save me, but the question is, have you called on him to save you? To rescue you from your sin. Because this verse affirms that rescue comes to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus and believes. Now, if you've done that, if you've been filled with his spirit, please understand that you have also been commissioned and empowered by the spirit to tell of the mighty works of God to the world for his glory. I realize that's a mouthful, so I'll let you write those things down. But I think it's a significant phrase to understand as Christians that we have been empowered and commissioned by the Spirit to tell the mighty works of God to the world for His glory. That's, that's the pebble that's being dropped in the water in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And the ripple effects begin to move outward as we go. And it's a beautiful thing. Lastly, last thing, you remember uh, in the book of John, chapter 21, this is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now he's with his disciples, and he has this, uh, what I refer to as a redemptive conversation with Peter. And he, he has this conversation, he's sitting down with Peter, and he's talking to him specifically. John records this in chapter 21, 15 through 19, and he's given Peter a chance to redeem to be redeemed, if you will. Because you remember, Peter denied Christ three times. Well, now, three different times, Jesus, in his conversation with Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Of course, what does Peter answer? He says, oh, you know I do. You know I love you. And how does Jesus respond? Three different times, he says, feed my sheep. Kind of a surprising answer, if you ask me. He says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Three different times. Now, we see in Acts chapter 2, what's Peter doing? That very thing. He's feeding the lambs, the sheep, the people of God. He's preaching boldly about salvation through the name of Jesus Christ alone. It was only days before this that he cowered in fear before a little girl around a fire. Now, he's preaching the gospel with boldness. The gospel changes everything. A relationship with Jesus changes everything, doesn't it? We'll see that as we go in the book of Acts when we we get to the, the subject of Saul. Jesus changes everything. And at the end of the conversation in John chapter 21, after Jesus says this to to Peter and Peter responds and that sort of thing, Jesus says two words that we shouldn't forget. 
He says to Peter, he says, after he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, he says, follow me. And you think, hadn't Jesus already said that to Peter once? Peter was kind of hard-headed, right? Suck his foot in his mouth a lot. Maybe he needed to hear it again. Truth is, maybe you need to hear it again. Maybe I need to hear it again. Jesus saying, follow me. If you've been saved, God has placed his spirit in you to empower you to do just that. Spur you on. Sanctification. Truth is, the Lord is calling you today. And everyone who calls back, who answers back, who responds back, will be saved, he says. Will you follow Jesus? Will you respond to the call? It's gone out. Will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, it's a beautiful thing to hear that everyone who calls on your name can be saved. Because each one of us gathered here listening this morning, we were all part of that group at some point. We were part of the whosoever that did not know you. But now, by grace through faith, we have called on your name and you have not cast us away, but you have adopted us and loved us deeper than we deserve. And we know that you're calling today. The call has gone out. The gospel is good. It overcomes fear. It it overcomes selfishness and pride. The truth of Jesus, the prophecy of Jesus is right and good for us to hear and you're calling to us today. Lord, I pray your spirit would move in many that would answer back in faith, in repentance, in belief. Not just belief in some ambiguous thing, Lord, but faith in Jesus alone who really did raise from the dead and who really now intercedes for his people. And so, Lord, uh, call to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us boldness to respond in faith. In your name we pray. Amen.